welcome here, everybody. Good to, good to be here on a Sunday morning, sharing the Word of God with you. I, um, I have told you stories about this before, but I, uh, for most of my life, have felt like an outsider in one way or another. Uh, when I was growing up in a small, rural Manitoba town, I made it a big deal that I was technically an American citizen. I think I've shared that before. I was born in Texas, uh, lived there for the first whole 10 months of my life, uh, born to Canadian parents who just happened to be living in Texas. I am not American really in any way at all, but I made a big deal of this in rural Manitoba. I'm an American and you're all just Canadians. Actually dual citizen, I'm Canadian too, but anyways. Kind of, you know, like wanting, kind of standing out in that place. I, I, I played basketball and I listened to rap music, whereas everybody else played hockey and listened to country music, which I don't understand. It's the worst kind of music. Anyways, um, I lived in Guatemala for two years in my adolescence. And so I was like the only, you know, English speaking kind of Canadian kid. Uh, I was, I went to this huge public high school in Calgary and I was, I was one of the only Christians that I knew of. And I tried, mostly unsuccessfully, to evangelize everybody I knew. Again, a little bit of an outsider there. And even now, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor at a, at a church in a city that is one of the most secular cities in, in North America. Uh, living here in my, in my 30s, where my demographic, in a city where my demographic is actually shrinking, not increasing. And, and even in my own life, I've kind of uh, had this journey from what I would consider a pretty theologically liberal background in my, in my teens and early 20s to what I would consider a much more kind of biblical and, and orthodox faith now, which is a bit of a different direction than some other people in my generation have gone. And, and so just throughout my life, I've always kind of felt like I just don't quite fit in. And the reason I, I say all of this is because when, when we've had that experience of being outsiders— and, and then we experience what it's like to be kind of inside, to actually feel like you belong and you fit in somewhere. You easily forget what it was like to be on the outside, right? You can very quickly forget what, what those people are experiencing. And you see this in history, right? You see these people who uh, came from poverty and, and they, they came to power and their whole promise was that they were going to liberate the poor. They were going to be on the side of the poor and instead they became the most brutal oppressors and dictators that country had ever seen. Like you even see it in the Bible. You know, the Jews spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt building the construction projects of the Pharaoh. And then a few centuries later, you've got King Solomon enslaving foreign people to build his construction projects. It's just, you know, it's so easy to kind of just for, forget. And, and not even just, just kind of to forget what it's like to be on the outside, but to actually bar those on the outside from coming in. You go, no, 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 this is my thing. You keep your hands off of my thing. And what we're going to see in Acts 13 today is that God's heart and God's mission run in a very different direction from that. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Acts 13, verses 42 to 52. We're picking up where we left last week. We were, Paul is in uh, Pisidian Antioch, this city in what is modern day uh, southern Turkey. And he preaches this sermon. And this is what happens right after the sermon. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing woman of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we read here right at the end that despite being kicked out of the city that these disciples if it's Paul and Barnabas or it's those in, in Pisidian Antioch, but the disciples of yours were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with joy. And that's what we seek today. That's what we ask for today. As, as we spend time in your word, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and fill us with joy because of who you are and what you have done. I pray that our hearts would be soft. I pray that we would receive what you have for us today. Give us open ears. And I trust, Lord, that, that your word will have power to renew us and transform us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we see here in Pisidian Antioch, it's, it's kind of a, a, a two, two-sided dynamic going on. And the, and the first, the, the one side of it, the one face of it is that you have this, this growth of the word of God. You have an expansion of, of the audience. There's There's growth. So Paul preaches a sermon in Pisidian Antioch, and his whole sermon is, is building on the common ground uh, with, with the Jewish story, right? He's saying, look, this is the story. This is what we understand about what God has done. And then he says, look, it all finds its fulfillment in Jesus. All of these promises that God gave our ancestors, they all have found their fulfillment in, in Jesus. And he says, Jesus is, is the embodiment of God's faithfulness. Look at, what, look at what God has done. Now, there was enough in that that was surprising and new and even controversial that the people in the synagogue said, we need you to come back. We need you to come back and share with us more. We need you to talk to us more about these things. And this already is an expansion of the, the word, a growth of the word, right? Because I've, I've been a guest speaker in places and never been invited back. I, I, you know, I've been to places and I just didn't hear a word afterwards. No feedback, no contact, nothing. They didn't even send me an honorarium. It was just like, the hosts were like, let's just pretend that never happened. Like if we just, you know, if we just kind of like ignore it, maybe, maybe we could just put it out of our minds. Craig who? We don't talk about Craig. We have no idea who that is. Uh, you, on the other hand, have been stuck with me for over five years and God willing, I'll be up here again next week, whether you invite me or not. So that's, that's just your, your, uh, your situation. But for Paul and Barnabas, they required an invitation. So here, here's an expansion. Here's a growth of their audience. And, and then something happens right there. They're leaving the synagogue and a whole bunch of people who are interested in what Paul has, has said, they, 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 they follow him. And they say, hey, tell, tell us more. They've got some questions for, um, for Paul and Barnabas. There's further discussion, further conversation. This is, well, it's, it's growing. 
And uh, in this too, I've experienced going to, I, I spoke in a church once. I preached the sermon. Uh, the tradition was that the, the pastor or the speaker would go to the back and everybody just filed out and would shake your hand, right? So everybody just kind of shook my hand. A few people said thank you. And they all just went right to their cars. Nobody stuck around for a moment. They all just went straight out of the church to their cars and drove away. And I'm like, I have no idea if anything I said landed. Like no clue. There's this promise in Isaiah 55 about the word of God accomplishing what God has for it, not returning to him, you know, empty and void. I'm like, I just got to hold on to this promise because I have no clue if anything I said made a difference. But one of the things I love about what we do at the bridge is that most of our community groups uh, go deeper into the sermon when they meet together during the following week. They, they look at the text, they, they ask some more questions, they engage in more discussion. And so I know that, that what has happened here, what we've done here on a Sunday morning is, is getting carried out through the week. They're, they're, it's, it, we're wrestling with how to apply this stuff. I'm so grateful for that because again, it shows that there's this growth that's taking place. Now all this is happening after, the, after Paul and Barnabas' time in the synagogue. We read in verse 44 uh, that the next week, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And people are just flocking to hear them speak again. And so obviously the, the conversations they had after that, that first time in the synagogue, that, it's just exploded. It's, it's spread like crazy. And you think especially probably of these God-fearing Gentiles. We talked about how in the synagogue you would have had many of the, the Jews, but you also would have had some of these God-fearing Gentiles who were drawn to the God of Israel, but they hadn't gone like, all the way to being converts. So, so these are the people especially, I think, who hear what Paul has said and, and, and they're, they're going out and they're telling people, hey, you know that thing that I do on Saturdays? You think it's kind of weird? Well, it just got way better. That, that story that I've been drawn to, there's, there's been a new development in that story. See, because there's, there's some really good news implicit in what Paul says. You heard, if, we, if we go back to where we were last week, verse 39, Paul says that through him, Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Through Jesus, everyone who believes, not everyone who's circumcised, not everyone who follows the law of Moses, not everyone who can trace their descent back to Abraham, but everyone who believes. And so for these God-fearing Gentiles, the news that this entry into the kingdom of God, this entry into the new life that Paul is talking about is based on faith. This would have been incredible news. So they're going around telling people, you gotta hear what this guy said, you know? Now we skip ahead a few verses. Look at the response to what all of these Gentiles hear Paul saying. Verse 49, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And we also read that, that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Now there's a verse, there's a, there's a phrase there in verse 49 that's become a bit of a theological back, battleground for, uh, for Christians. And it's that phrase, appointed for eternal life. So some, some people uh, would say this is one of the clearest New Testament references to predestination. 
This belief that God in his sovereignty from eternity past has chosen some people who will respond to the good news and and others, obviously he's not chosen. Some people would say this is a verse that clearly describes that. Other people would say that actually this word appointed uh, has some other meanings and one of those meanings is disposed. That this is describing people who are favorably disposed towards the gospel. That their hearts are soft. That the circumstances of their life have brought them to a place of openness to the gospel. And still others, I'm just going to give you all kinds of options here. Just pick whichever one you like best. No. Um, still others would say that the, the phrase appointed doesn't refer to something that happened in eternity past. But something that happened when these God-fearing Gentiles put their faith in Israel's God. So when they made that decision to trust in the God of Israel, they had been appointed for eternal life. And now that they've heard the preaching about Jesus, they've believed, they've accepted it because they were already appointed in the past. Now, um, I think you can make a case for any of those based on this text. When we come to big, huge theological questions like this, you have to really take into account what other scriptures say. And we don't have time for that. And it's not Luke's main point anyway. So we're just gonna, I'm just going to throw all that stuff out there and we're going to keep moving. Because the point... The point here is the incredibly favorable response by the Gentiles that they hear this, that they believe, that they understand that Jesus is good news for them too. And again, what what Luke says is that the word of the Lord spreads like wildfire. It's it's just, it's everywhere. It's it's contagious. It's infectious. It's, It's going throughout the whole region. And I think one of the reasons that it spread so quickly like this is because it was so new. You see, none of these Gentiles had ever experienced an inauthentic disciple of Jesus. They had never witnessed hypocrisy. They, they They had never been to a dead hypocritical church, right? They didn't have any of that. They were so fresh. They were so, to use the wildfire analogy, they were so dry, right? It was all so new. And so when Paul and Barnabas, who loved the Lord so deeply, preached with such power and conviction, I mean, you can understand how there is this this opportunity for it to spread quickly, aggressively, whatever. And I think this is a major difference with our culture. Because in our culture, In in Western culture, so many people have been immunized to Christian faith. You know how a lot of immunizations work by by exposing the body to something very much like the real thing, right? Like, Like exposing it to a killed virus so that when the body actually does encounter the real thing, it knows how to fend it off. And I think that's what's happened in our culture is that there has been this exposure to something that kind of looks like Christianity in many cases, something that's kind of lukewarm, half-hearted, it's partly there, but not all the way, and people go, oh, I'm not really interested in that, I'm out. You get a lot of of this kind of cultural influence still of Christian faith, because it's had a big influence on Western culture. And so a lot of people think that they know what Christians believe. They actually don't, but they think they do, and so they've dismissed it. They've kind of disregarded it from the start. And then you've got people in the church. People in the church who would claim to be followers of Jesus, but actually they're, they're dead inside. 
And those are the hardest people to reach because they think they're already in. They think they're in, they're not, they're not actually, but they think they are. And so they're, of all people, maybe the most immune to this life that Jesus has for them. You see what I mean? There's a lot of that going on, I think, that immunity to Christian faith that's been built up by, by a kind of a half-hearted exposure. But this is actually what gives me hope in a place like North Vancouver. Because in a place like North Vancouver, which is even more secular than almost any other city in North America, there is a social cost to being associated with Jesus. In the past, there was a social benefit, right? If you, if you went to church, you were like a good, upstanding citizen. But more and more now, if you go to church, people are like, man, you're weird and probably backwards. And like, it's just kind of like, uh, like an uncomfortable thing, right? So the social cost of being associated with Jesus has increased, which means that gen- generally it's going to be, be the people who are actually interested, who are actually genuine and authentic, who show up, right? And so, and so the church has an opportunity of, of really being a vibrant place where we're all going in the same direction. You know what I mean? And, and also, you've got a generation growing up who know nothing about Christian faith, who know nothing about the Bible. I've seen this. I've, I've heard this in conversations with people who have never been to church in their life, and they show up, and they've never heard of any of these people or any of this stuff. You know, especially in a place like this neighborhood where I think for a lot of people, maybe their grandparents went to church once in a while, maybe. Like, like a lot of them are like two, three generations back from any serious engagement with faith, which means that the, the wood is drying out. That there is, there is an opportunity here for a spark to actually really set fire. We're in a culture that has separated itself more and more from Christian faith, creating more of a thirst, creating more of a, of a, of a confusion and, and, a, and a crisis. And, and so people are more open, perhaps, than they were in the past. This is what I'm praying for. This is what I'm hoping for, that we would see a wildfire break out once again. I see the possibility. I pray for it. I pray that you would too. In any case, we would, we would seek for the same kind of thing we see in Pisidian Antioch, to take place in our world, in our community, wouldn't we? Amen? So that's one part of the story. That, that's one side of it, is, is these outsiders just flocking to, to hear the good news and receiving it and being filled with joy, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The other side of this, the other part of this dynamic, is what happens with the, the insiders. And what we read in verse 45 is that they are 44 is, or no, 45, they're, they're filled with jealousy. That many of these leaders look at what's happening and, and th- this is not a good thing. This is not a positive thing. They are filled with jealousy, with anger, with fear. And some of that sprang from Paul's own message. We just talked about the, the thing that Paul said about the bar being faith in Jesus alone. It's not about, your, you're not, not about your ancestry or your obedience or your, your ritual, kind of like the circumcision, all that stuff. It's not about that. And for a lot of Jews, for whom that was really, really central, that was really important to their identity and their, their understanding of their, rights, their righteousness with God, the news that actually that stuff doesn't count for that much in God's sight, that, that would have been offensive to them. And not only that, but, but Paul ends his sermon with this, this warning. If you were with us last week, you might remember. He says, look, either you could trust in Jesus or you can scoff 
at this, you can disregard it, but the consequences of that, the implication is the consequences of that are that you're outside of God's people. And for some of those Jews to hear, oh, so you're saying that despite the fact that I'm a Jew descended from Abraham, that I might not be in, that also would have been offensive. And then add to all of that, that all of a sudden you come to synagogue the following week and the place is packed with idolatrous, morally unclean Gentiles. You can understand why for some of those leaders, they would have looked at that and said, this thing is going off the rails. They would have gotten possessive and territorial, right? Said, no, 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 this is, this is not okay. This is our place of worship. When I was thinking about that, I thought about this story about Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California in the late 60s. Calvary Chapel was, was a small kind of uh, traditional church led by a guy named Chuck Smith, not the Converse guy, but um, I think it was, that's Converse, right? Chuck Smith, yeah, yeah, Brent? Yeah, you're wearing Converse right there. Look at that. I'm, call, I'm calling you out, man. All right, not the Converse guy, the pastor, Chuck Smith, and his wife, Kay. And, uh, and Kay especially had this vision, this desire to reach out to the hippies. Saw these hippies, Southern California, right? Late 60s. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit and through some connections that were made, it started to happen. These hippies started coming to Calvary Chapel. It started booming with these, with these hippies. And they're, they're walking in and they're like, they're barefoot and they got like long scraggly hair and they, they stink because they, they've never heard of a shower or anything like that. And, and, you know, they're just sitting on the floor. They don't even sit on the pews. It's just like, it's a whole different thing. And, and, and there was this resistance, right? Because you have all these like prim and proper traditional, you know, Christians who grew up in the churches of the 40s and 50s or whatever. And they're looking at this happening. And they're like, this is not, this is not our thing, you know? Like, like this is changing. We don't like these new attendees. We don't like all their mannerisms and everything. And so there were complaints. There was resistance. Now, thank God that Chuck Smith continued to push on and, and to carry this through because, because soon there was a full-out revival. We're talking about hundreds and thousands of hippie teens and young adults being baptized in the Pacific Ocean every month. These, these, these former hippies who <laughs> would have seemed like the least likely to come to faith in Jesus. And yet there was just this massive groundswell of love for Christ. And, and understand that the resistance to this wasn't because these hippies were like, yeah, I want to do Jesus and I also want to do drugs. Like, no, they were, they were authentically thirsty for the gospel, for the good news. That, that resistance came from much more twisted motives. And those are the same kinds of motives at play in Pisidian Antioch. These motives that, that just say, hey, this is, this is, not, this is not okay. This is, this is our thing. So the, these, these Jewish leaders, um, they, they're, they're in the synagogue. Paul and Barnabas are speaking. They see the Gentiles packing the place and something switches. Something flips within them. And they start contradicting everything Paul and Barnabas are saying. They start arguing with them, debating them. They start heaping abuse on them. And, and actually the word there, the Greek word is, is blaspheme which as you would probably guess has a very religious connection. And so it's not just that they're it's not just that they're heaping abuse on Paul, they're heaping abuse on Jesus. This is, this is not just discomfort. It's not just hesitancy. This, this is hostility. This is, this is full-out animosity driven by those feelings of fear and insecurity. And, and what happens is, 
is that these, uh, well, they, they see the word of God spreading. They see the Gentiles receiving it. And, and as we go ahead a few verses, these Jewish leaders realize it's not going to be enough just to get Paul and Barnabas out of the synagogue. They got to get them out of the city altogether. This thing is really dangerous. We got to boot them out altogether. And so they go to the leading men and women of the city and uh, they convince them, hey, you need to start treating these guys pretty harshly. You need to do something about this. And this is how they would have done it, almost for sure. Um, one of Paul's, uh, the aspects of his, of his message would have been that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is king. He is, he is Lord. Remember um, last week, the, the, the sermon that he preaches, all of these promises made to David, King David. And, and Paul says, these have been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is king. He alone is able to declare people innocent, to forgive sins. Now listen, this would have been a huge affront to Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And what I didn't mention last week is that Pisidian Antioch was a Roman colony. It was in fact, in, in some circles, called New Rome in the first century. It was uh, a Roman colony meant that that was the highest status you could have outside of Rome. People took their allegiance to Rome really seriously, really deeply. You know, you're not going to do anything to offend Caesar if you're a Roman colony. And so these Jewish leaders must go to the leading men and women of the city and go, guys, do you hear what they're saying? Do you know how dangerous this is? You've got to do something about this. You've got to get rid of them. And so they do. They, uh, they convince the, the, these Gentiles to, to persecute Paul and Barnabas, to give them the right fist of fellowship on their way out of the city. And, and that's that. They're, they're, they're out of there. And you kind of look at this and you go, man, that escalated quickly, didn't it? And Paul and Barnabas just speaking good news and all of a sudden they're getting abused, persecuted, cast out of the city. Again, it's understandable given the offense of their message, the shot at the pride of these Jewish leaders, all of these Gentiles coming in. It's understandable, but it's, it's not okay. It's not, it's not justified. Paul actually says that by rejecting Jesus... They are judging themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. That, that it's not even just that God is judging them, but that they are judging themselves to be unworthy. And so Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet as they're leaving. That was, that was, a, that was a symbolic gesture. Jesus told his disciples to do it as well if a town rejected them. Uh, but it goes back even further than that. Apparently when Jews would travel in Gentile lands and, and they would come back to the promised land, that's what they would do. They would shake the dust off their feet as a symbol of like, okay, we're leaving the uncleanness. We're leaving the idolatry behind. Here we're coming into this pure and holy place. When Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet, they are saying that these Jewish leaders of the synagogue are in fact in the same place as idolatrous Gentiles are. That they are outside of God's people. Man, this is, this is some heavy-duty stuff. That these, that these people who were once insiders are now being declared, no, you're actually outside of this because of how you have responded to that. Let's, let's reflect on this a little bit too. What we see here is, is a warning to our own 
warning of our own tendencies. We see this in all kinds of ways. We see it with, with sports fans, bandwagon fans, right? Let's say you're a fan of a team. You've been a fan of a team for a long time, right? And then all of a sudden, there's, there's success, and, and, and on tons of people are like, yeah, we love this team too. This might have been what happened with baseball in Canada if the Blue Jays actually had any real pitchers and could hold on to an 8-1 lead, but we're not talking about that. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you have this dynamic, right? And all the longtime fans go, hey, you're, you're not a real fan like me. I was with the team from the beginning. I suffered through losing seasons. You know, I, I'm the real deal. You're just a fake. It's the kind of thing that happens with music bands too, right? Where you might, you might have discovered a band that isn't very well known and they, they were playing like coffee shop and bar gigs and everything. And like, yeah, this is my band. And, and then they get big and, and they're starting to sell out like concerts and, and bigger like arenas and everything like that. And then the fans that were there from the beginning kind of look scornfully at the new listeners and they look scornfully at the band itself and say that the band is just a bunch of sellouts because they've got a bigger, a bigger fan base, right? And they just kind of get bitter towards it. And it's the kind of thing that happens in churches sometimes when there is this growth in, in a new demographic. Now, here at the bridge, we, we have seen some growth. We're not baptizing hundreds and thousands of people in the, in, at Kate's Park yet, but let's pray for that, yeah? That would be, that would be pretty amazing. I, I, man, I long for that. But we have, see, we have seen some growth. And... Um, and, and, and I think some of us who have been at the bridge for a long time just have to be aware of that tendency in the human heart. There's, there's no place for a kind of a, a pride of seniority, this attitude that says, well, I've been here for X number of years, therefore, and I'm not saying that because I hear it, I don't. Actually, what I've seen is, is very much the opposite, and I'm so grateful for that. Last week, we did those, uh, those evergreen apple trees uh, for Thanksgiving, which is a combination a strange combination that was not at all because we came up with this idea three days in advance and had to pull out Christmas props to make it happen. It had nothing to do with that. Highly symbolic, evergreen apple trees. And I loved, I loved looking at what uh, people wrote. And, and there was one apple in particular that, that stood out to me. And it said, thankful for all the newcomers to the bridge. And I know who wrote this because they wrote their name on the top. That's why you're like, Craig, you're the worst photographer ever. Like, you just cut off the apple at the top. I wouldn't want to see what you do with a portrait of an individual human being. But, uh, no, it's because the name was written at the top. And so I know who wrote it. It's somebody who's been at the church for quite a while, has served in leadership capacities. But this is what makes his heart sing, is, is seeing new people at the church. And I just, I love that. I love that. And my prayer would be that this would be true of all of us who have been at the bridge for any length of time that we would just go, oh, this is so good. We want more of this. We want to see more people coming and, and participating in the life of Christ here in this place. Now, we've talked about these two dynamics. We realize how we are vulnerable to them in, in various ways. But the way that, the way that you can help people who have that insider mentality uh, move towards being people who embrace the, the people that God is bringing to us is, uh, is not by heaping on shame and guilt, but it's actually by understanding God's own heart and mission. And that's where I wanted to spend the last few minutes here because it's where Paul and Barnabas go too. So they're in the synagogue, places packed, Gentiles are responding, Jewish leaders have a problem with this. And what do Paul and Barnabas say? Verse 40, 
uh, verse 47, they quote Isaiah. They quote Isaiah 49, and they say, I, uh, God has commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I want to look at the bigger context of Isaiah 49, because I think that helps us understand the profound and important thing Paul and Barnabas are saying here. In, in Isaiah 40, there is a, a kind of a switch in, in the book of Isaiah, where the setting now is that the, uh, the Israelites, the Jews, are, are exiles in Babylon. And God is telling them, your, your hard service is done. I'm going to bring you out of exile. I'm going to bring you out of Babylon. And, and, and he says he's going to do this even through a Gentile king named Cyrus, which some people maybe had a bit of an issue with. But God says, this is what I'm going to do. But there's a problem. And the problem is that the thing that caused the Jews to go into exile hasn't really been dealt with. So, so God says to Israel in Isaiah 42, you're my servant, Israel, but you're blind and you're deaf. You're still vulnerable to idolatry and unfaithfulness. That hasn't changed. So God's got his servant, but his servant needs saving. His servant needs rescuing because they're just as vulnerable as everybody else. And so in Isaiah 49, there's, there's another switch where this, this servant of the Lord language becomes more and more focused on an individual instead of the whole nation. God is saying, I'm going to send a servant, individual, singular, to save my servant Israel. Now, this servant is still going to represent Israel. So Isaiah 49, verse 3 God said to me, this is now from the perspective of this servant, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. He calls the servant Israel, but the servant's job, according to verse 45, is to bring Israel back, gather Israel back to God, something the nation as a whole can't do. So an individual represents Israel to rescue Israel, to return Israel to God. However, there's another problem here. Because in verse 4 of Isaiah 49, the servant says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. The servant is meeting with, with resistance, with opposition. The servant who represents Israel is supposed to rescue Israel, but Israel is not cooperating. And so what does God say? to the servant in response. Verse, 46, verse 49, verse 6. This is the part that, that Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas quote. He says, it is too small a thing. This is God addressing the servant. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A light for the Gentiles, salvation reaching to the ends of the earth. This is so, so key. If you go all the way back to Genesis 12, near the beginning of the Bible. Okay, so, so Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. It's a good place, a place of blessing. Genesis 3, sin gets in. Sin starts infecting everything. Things go off the rails. Cain is murdering Abel. People are building massive prideful towers. There's a flood. The whole thing, it's going crazy. And in Genesis 12, God decides to call one person. He chooses one man out of all the peoples on earth, Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to make you into a people. And he says to him in Genesis 12, I'm going to set you into your own land, your own place. I'm going to bless you. 
But this blessing is not just so that Abraham and his descendants can go, look at us. We're so loved. Nah, 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 nah. We're special. It's not it. I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, if you were to track the kind of the big picture of God's mission in the world, this is what it is. Sin has gotten into the, into the world. It's messing everything up. God wants to rescue the world. Let's look at, this is, this is my, this is like art at its finest right here, this next slide, guys. Look at that. Yeah, look at that. I made that all on my own. So God, God wants to save Israel, but Israel needs rescuing. Israel, the servant, the, the means of God revealing himself to the world is needing, needing saving as well. So what does God do? God sends someone who is not only going to restore Israel, not only fulfill Israel's, um, not only to restore Israel, but to fulfill Israel's calling. To fulfill Israel's calling to be a light to the nations, to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. This servant is going gonna, is gonna to kind of represent Israel and do what Israel failed to do, but was called to do. Does that make sense? And now, of course, we understand that this servant is Jesus. That Jesus comes as the faithful Jew, as the one who represents Israel and goes to the cross not only to pay the price for the sins of Israel, but to pay the price for the sins of, of all who trust in him. That Jesus' mission is not just to Israel, it is for the world. And when Paul and Barnabas quote Isaiah 49, they are saying, we are are servants of this servant. And so his mission is our mission. This is what we had to do. We had to go to the synagogue first. We had to speak to the Jews first because that's the logic of this. That's the progression of this. But ultimately, the calling of the servant is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's why you're seeing this. It's why you're seeing rejection from the insiders and embrace of the outsiders. Because this is what Isaiah foretold would happen all along. We are servants of the servant. His calling is our calling. And this is the calling to be God's means of salvation for the earth. Now to bring it to our day, this is really, really good news. Because it means that Jesus didn't just come for the insiders, the in-group. Jesus didn't just come for one nation or one people group. He came for all who would trust in him. He came for the meek and the lowly. He came for those who mourn. He came for those who were persecuted. He came for those who were stripped of everything. He came for the hungry and the thirsty. He came for the Jews, but he also came for the Greeks and the Filipinos and the Chinese and the Latinos and the First Nations and the Canadians. He came for all who would see his glory, who would be drawn to his glory, who would give their allegiance to him as king and lord above all things, you were lost apart from him. But through Jesus, you have, you have been found. You were an outsider to God's people, but because of his grace to you and Jesus, you are in. You are a son or a daughter of the king. But it's so easy, isn't it, to forget what it's like to be on the outside. It's so easy once you have those, those blessings to forget why you have those blessings. To forget God's heart. To seek and to save the lost. But listen, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, that's simply not an option. You are a servant of the servant. And his mission is your mission. 
You see, the gospel is meant to be shared. It's meant to, to, to spread. The church is meant to grow. This is not a social club. This is not a community service. This is not a study group. This is a movement. This is a movement that is meant to be spread. It's a movement that's meant, it's created to go viral. This is news. This is good news about a king. This is good news about a new way of life. This is news about a God who loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is our calling. Let's be true to it. You've got to have this heart. You've got to have God's heart for the lost, for those who don't yet know him. This is our purpose. This is our calling. This is our mission to make him known to the ends of the earth. Let's go. Let's do it. And let's, let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for this reminder of our calling for those of us who have been adopted as your, as your children, who've come into your family, that this is a blessing that needs to be shared. It's a, it's a blessing that needs to be extended to others. We're not supposed to hold this to ourselves. We certainly aren't supposed to get territorial about this. And so, God, I pray that by your power that you would work in our hearts and that you would, uh, you would mold our hearts so that they reflect your heart Lord, that when we see those who are outside of your people, that, that our hearts would break for them. We read in the Gospels that um, there's a party in heaven when even one sinner repents and turns to the Lord. We, we read that, that God is like a, like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek the one lost sheep. And so, God, I pray that we would have that heart too, that as a church we would have that heart I pray that you would fill us, God, so much with your Holy Spirit that, that our one driving motivation in life would be to make you known. And I pray, Lord, for those who are not yet in, who are, are, are still kind of considering this, and I pray, Lord, that they would see the glory of the blessings that have come in Jesus and that they would put their trust in you. Our prayer is, is that you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit. You haven't created us to live uh, just to kind of get by and just to kind of go through the motions through our life to show up at church once in a while and, and tick off a box. You've created us for a purpose. You have, you have given us the invitation to be part of your mission. So Lord, I pray that this would just grip us, that, that we would that we would be so captivated by this, driven by this, oriented towards this, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us at Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. 
We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.